guys, welcome to First and Second Timothy. Today we're going to do First uh, Timothy chapter two. So let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for this, your word, and the truth of it. And Lord, we just pray you give us ears to hear, and uh, that we would be able to apply it to our lives, Lord, through your power for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, like I said before, I hope you guys are reading along um, in your scriptures, and that. You'll, if you haven't read chapter 2, that you go back and read it as you listen to this so that maybe it make it more applicable and prayerfully will, hopefully. Okay, Paul opens chapter 2, urging his readers to pray. The word translated urge, it literally means a call intended to produce a particular effect that's exhorting us all to action of prayer. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer was his, his uh, call to action in Romans 12. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change. This is by Timothy Keller. The reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We simply have to. John Owen says, A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouse of the public, but what the minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is, and no more. Paul sought to teach his readers the importance of praying for everyone, particularly those in authority. The motive behind his purpose being that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is pleasing to God. This urging should certainly draw our attention to our individual prayer lives as well. Most of us, if we're honest, pray very, very selfishly, or at the very least, narrowly, seeking only to cover our immediate families and close friends, praying for our governing officials, those who lead our country with thanksgiving, oftentimes is an afterthought at best. Sadly, we seem to pray for what is the most bothersome to us over and over again and what is the most bothering rather than what is the most bothering to the heart of God who, Paul states, desires for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul's prayers on behalf of the saints are exemplary. I often mimic them in my own prayer life when I pray for my family and for my friends. We can know for certain, you can know for certain, it is God's will if we are praying his word back to him. I think it just floats his holy boat. Indeed, I think it just blesses his heart to hear his children repeating his truths to him. Two examples of Paul's prayer are as follows. You can insert the names of your families and friends where it says you are yours. And this is my prayer, Paul prays. In Philippians, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And in Colossians, he tells us, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, where he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's list was for all requests, meaning to pray, beg, implore, prayer for particular benefits. That's what request means. And prayers, which meaning to offer prayer, prayer to God, intercession, meaning an appeal to authority, a petition directed toward the one whose jurisdiction is to grant the request, encounter, approach, prayer of intercession on behalf of others, with thanksgiving, the thankful, grateful, well-pleasing gratitude. And it covers it all. All of these ways show that we know that God, we can trust him with whatever the outcome is, like Jesus' prayer in the Gethsemane. Whatever your will is, Lord, is what I want. Not my will, but yours. We are to be praying thankful people as prayer changes things, not the least of which is our own stinking hearts. Prayer gives us clarity. It gives us proper focus. It demonstrates our trust and our dependence on the one who gives the power, who gives the glory. I greatly desire to humbly go before his throne emptying myself of me and asking for the Holy Spirit to fill me, every part of me, with his fullness. I want to pray according to his will and not my own. It's like, don't give me what I want if it's not for my best, Lord. This is not to say I do not pray specifically for things. Rather, I do. Yet I, I seek to confidently leave them in his all-sufficient hands his all-powerful hands. I seek to, to do this because I know he always has my best interests at heart and that he loves me with an everlasting love. And if he loved me enough to die for me, he's going to love me enough to do the lesser. Also, I desire to seek to be still and not distracted before him. This is very, very, very hard in our day and age to quiet ourselves in his presence, ever an ear to hear from him, which I might add is difficult at best. But just as the psalmist said, be still, be still. How often are we just still and know that I'm God? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And David, King David adding, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. God is always on time. He is never early, nor is he late. God desires to make himself further known to us. 
through our stillness before him, when we quiet ourselves before him, if we just seek, I remember a long time ago when I would just be on my face before him and just lie there and be still and just think of his awesomeness in his presence. Sometimes I sing. Sometimes I envision him on a great throne with Jesus at his right hand, always interceding for me. It's a wonderful reminder, as well as comforting for me, to know that he is ever on that throne. And nothing, nothing takes him by surprise. We live in such confusing times, don't, do we not? And, and God, often only God can clear the way for, of our confusion. It's like so many times and the Israelites would say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. That's often me. Lord, I have no idea what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. Our attitudes of heart are to be honest and humbly repentant before him and earnestly seek his will and way. Is, is their way, is his way is always pleasing and perfect for the pilgrim. It does us good to remember that Paul was to, to make known the gospel to the Gentile world. And what a world it was. It was a world literally rotten in its vileness and corruption. You know, sin does not stay at a level. It just continues to go down and down and down and down. And baser and baser it goes. A world given to the worst kind of paganism and idolatry. A world in which men were enslaved by Satan and powerless to deliver themselves. Much akin to our world today. Only God can change a human heart. It was into such a world as this that the Apostle Paul proclaimed the one who gave himself a ransom for all. And when men believed the message, they were saved. They were transformed. And they who had been led by Satan, captive to do his will, became captives in the chains of love, delighting to serve the one who had died to redeem them. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. People are touched and transformed through God's love. Lastly, a good rule of thumb in regarding our quiet times in prayer times is taken from two saints from the past, Mueller and Martin Luther. Both would ask themselves a series of questions uh, regarding the text that they read. Is there any example for me to follow? Is there any command for me to obey? Is there any error for me to avoid? Is there any sin for me to forsake? Is there any promise for me to claim is there any new thought about God himself? After meditation of the word, prayer is first approaching God in confession of our sins and then responding with thanksgiving and praise for our salvation via the cross. God has never promised to answer a prayer that comes through unclean lips. True prayer must be backed up by a holy life as we seek to walk before him in purity keeping our actions short with repentance. All men are entitled to approach God, but they must be careful that they are living such lives as will commend their prayers to God. God has never promised to hear the prayers of people who are not seeking to walk righteously before him in repentance. After praise comes intercession for others, and finally, petition for our own needs. 
Lastly, in our prayers, we are not to pray with indignation or malice, but with sincere love for all mankind, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Out of love for others, we are to pray with confidence and speak the truth with boldness. The apostle now turns his instructions for women in the church. If you're looking for a passage of scripture that runs directly counter to the prevailing wisdom of our culture, then 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 is a good place to start. Our culture is terribly twisted on issues of gender and sexuality and the pressure for the church to compromise and conform on these issues is great. Pastor Mark Denver states, the most important revolution in the last century has been the sexual revolution. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. It was as if a license was given out, legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. Since that time, divorce, remarriage, abortion, premarital sex, extramarital sex, as well as homosexuality, have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. Pornography is a huge business. This is not just a problem with society out there. Many churches have found their members plagued by failed marriages, illicit affairs, so-called private sins that turn into public disgraces, some of which are known, some of which are not yet known. We live in a culture, on a world, and sadly a church marked by rampant sexual immorality, skyrocketing divorce, and degradation of marriage and the confusion of gender. Of this, Piper writes, confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood today is epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequences, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that comes with the loss of a God-given identity. Ladies, God's word is not out of line, and it is not out of date. It is true and right and good. It is as applicable today as it was when it was written. May we repent of our unbelief and arrogance and gladly submit to God's best for our lives, which is his good design. God's desire is for salvation of all people, and he is deserving of the worship of all people. And Christ's death was for all people. Clearly, Paul was addressing situations and problems that were evident in the church at Ephesus in the first century. They don't just come out of nowhere. They were written to a specific people at a specific time. Nevertheless, God's words still applies to all people at all times. Paul begins addressing the women with respect to their dress and hairstyles as they had become distraction in the church. Like many ancient cities into which Christianity was born, Ephesus was filled with sexual immorality. It was common for women to use ornate fashions to attract attention to themselves, and sometimes in very seductive ways. Clearly, God has said to all people of all times, in all cultures, not to be adorned with things that draw other people's attention for the wrong reasons. 
That principle always remains true. For example, the culture in Ephesus emphasized the hairstyles and dress of the women to which Paul was referring as violating modesty, decency, and good sense. On the other hand, say in Africa, for instance, elaborate hairstyles do not express the same meaning as the Ephesus culture. Their elaborate hairstyles equate to modesty, decency, lost my place, excuse me, and sensible. Obviously, our understanding of cultural context matters. God desires for his children to walk in a manner worthy and dress in a manner worthy of his high calling of their lives. You are children of the king. We are to live as such. We are not to dress in a ways that would, would cause shame to his name. We must use good sense in our decency and, and decency in our clothing. The examples vary in differing cultures, but the principle remains the same. We do not want it's not that hard. We do not want to accommodate our culture by disregarding discarding truth that the Bible addresses clearly and repeatedly. One last thing about dress, it is not supposed to be our main focus. This is not to condone some sort of dire, morose, dark look. Rather, our appearance is to be lovely, is to be proper and wooing. Also, we are to be more concerned with the beauty on our insides rather than on our exterior, as Peter tells us. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Another thing for us to consider in our discussion is that God created men and women with equal dignity. That is, both male and female are equally valuable before God. Therefore, to demean men or women is to sin against God. Paul's instructions here have nothing to do with the value of men and women. Rather, he was talking about the roles of men and women. God created men and women with differing and distinct roles, which complement each other. Relationships of the Trinity provide us with a helpful analogy. While all three are fully God, they all have differing roles. I like to think of it as God wills it, the Son words it, and the Spirit works it. In the home, God's good design for the husband and wife relate to each other with specific complementary roles. In a similar way, men and women have complementary roles in the church as well. Paul gives two prohibitions in the church. A woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. We know that Paul makes it clear in Titus 2-3 that older women are to teach younger women. Scripture also mentions a number of instances where women play the significant teaching role. Now, one is Timothy received instructions from his mother and his grandmother. Two, Priscilla and her husband Aquila both took Apollos aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Three, men and women both make disciples, which involves going, baptizing, and teaching people to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. Another is Paul told the whole church, men and women, to be teaching, admonishing in one another with all wisdom, as the word of Christ dwelt in them richly. And then lastly, Paul seemed to allow for women praying and prophesying in public worship. 
though with proper humility and submission. Women who are gifted at teaching should use their gifts to build up the body of Christ, but not as the role of elder. Their teaching should be in accord with and not contrary to what the elders of the church teach. Women are not to lead the elders, pastors, or overseers in the church. Instead of exercising authority, women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. By God's grace, women are to submit gladly to the servant leadership of the elders. Women should lead in various positions of the church under the authority of the elder leadership, just as the man is the authority of the home, and he is answered, has to answer God for the home. Scripture is clear on the prohibitions against women teaching and leading as an elder. Beyond this, it's not quite as clear. We need to be clear where Scripture is clear and wise where Scripture is not clear. Remember, God's design and creation gives authority to man. This is a central revelation, not a cultural expression. God also, after the fall, came first to Adam, showing responsibility. Paul is not basing his view merely on human opinion, which changes, but on divine revelation, which never changes. As a woman teaches, she is to reflect God's pattern for her in Scripture. It's also interesting to note in Genesis, after the fall, what the subsequent consequences were for Adam, Eve, and the serpent. In Genesis we find, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike the seal. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you are to return. Piper writes, The fields of opportunity are endless for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. Nobody is to be at home watching soaps and reruns <laughs> while the world burns. God intends to equip and mobilize all the saints under the leadership of a company of qualified men who take primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church. All of this leads to one of Paul's most difficult statements in 1 Timothy 2.15. But women will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The ambiguous words kept safe through childbirth have given rise to several diverse interpretations. A. Preserved physically through the difficult and dangerous process of childbirth. B. Preserved from insignificance by means of her role in the family. C. Saved through the ultimate childbirth of Jesus Christ the Savior, an indirect reference to Genesis 3.15. And D. Kept from the corruption of society by being home-raising children. 
The interpretation of the verse is further clouded by the conditional clauses at the end. If they, that is mothers, continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. When everyone understands the first part of the verse to be affirming, it is contingent on a woman's willingness to abide in these four virtues. While we do not know for certain, I believe the most plausible one to be talking about, it's talking about <clears throat> the salvation through the offspring of Eve. It's a deliberate reference to the fact that even though the woman ate the fruit first and sin entered the world through her, the promise remains that the Savior would enter the world through her, as we just read in Genesis 3.15. According to this, a child would be born through Eve's line that would one day trample the serpent. Stott writes of this. Earlier in this chapter, the one mediator between God and men has been identified as the man, Jesus Christ, who, of course, became a human being by being born of a woman. Further, in the context of Paul's reference to the creation and fall, recalling Genesis 2 and 3, a further reference to the coming redemption through the woman's seed, recalling Genesis 3.15, would be most apt. The serpent had deceived her. Her posterity would defeat him. So then, if certain roles are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent their position, they and we must never forget what we all owe to woman. If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to a woman than in the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Sin entered through a woman, and salvation entered through a woman. Two things we know for sure. Women are sanctified as they glorify God in the distinct roles and responsibilities he has entrusted to them. There is meaning and significance behind a woman's gender. So sisters in Christ should be working out their salvation not as a generic person, but as women of God with inherent beauty and value, as well as distinct giftings and opportunities. Sisters in Christ should thrive in their roles as wives, mothers, and women of God. The second thing we know for sure is women are saved not through the birth of a child, but through the death of Jesus. For that matter, women and men are saved through the death of Christ alone. All are. Sin has disordered this world we live in, and Satan has distorted God's good design for our manhood, our womanhood, our marriages, our families, the church, and the culture. But Christ has come, and he has conquered sin and trampled the devil. In Christ, we can all thrive. He died to make us the men and women God created us to be. We are to submit to his wonderfully good design. Let's close in prayer. Father, just thank you for this hard teaching, Lord. We just pray that you would help us to have ears to hear and, and eyes to see, Lord, and not be clouded in our, in our thinking, but think clearly, Lord, exactly what you want from Scripture and help us to take it to heart. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you have a good plan and that you will guide us in it. And we trust you to lead us, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.